Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Barry Wolf. I'm going to be moderating this panel today. Uh, we're really excited to have you all here, and thank you all very much for coming. Um, the topic of tonight's panel is Say It Ain't Soy. Um, very clever pun. And I have to thank um, Chris, who's in the audience, for planning and for coming up with this really great title. Um, so we're going to be discussing today labeling of plant-based um, alternative foods. And we have as speakers Lori Barrett Peterson, Nigel Barella, and Lorraine Lewandrowski. And I'm going to start just by introducing them and just saying a few words, and then we'll just get right to the presentations. Um, Lori Barrett Peterson, she's the chair of the New York City Bar Animal Law Committee. Um, and she, along with Chris, helped to plan this really terrific panel and presentation that we're going to have for you today. And she does a lot of amazing work. And I encourage you all, if you are not familiar with the Animal Law Committee, just to go on our website and see some of the other great work that, that Lori and the committee has put on. She's a past member of the New York City Election Law Committee and a recipient of the New York City Public Service Award. Currently, she's a transactional attorney for New York City Law Department and previously worked for the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs, where she prosecuted businesses for violating local consumer protection laws and advised the public on the interpretation of such laws. Um, to my right, I have Nigel Barella. He's an attorney in Washington, D.C. He braved the snow to travel here today, and we thank him for that. In his private practice, he frequently works with small businesses and nonprofits on food regulatory issues. Last year, on behalf of the Good Food Institute, he filed a citizen petition with the FDA about the labeling of plant-based foods and other alternative foods. And earlier this month, also for the Good Food Institute, he filed a friend of the court brief in a California federal class action lawsuit in which he defended the right of almond milk producers to call their products almond milk. Should be, hopefully we'll hear something about that today. And to my left, I have uh, Lorraine Lewandrowski. Lorraine is a dairy farmer who is a honors graduate of Albany Law and Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, where she also completed Harvard Business School's Global Agribusiness Program. Her clients have included the endangered Carner Blue Butterfly, environmental plaintiffs, local municipalities, the Amish community, and family farmers. Lorraine has served on the New York State Solid Waste Management Advisory Board is a commissioner of the Mohawk Valley Heritage Corridor Commission, and she was elected to serve as board president to lead a regional nursing home out of bankruptcy. The highlights of her law career include a law review article on contaminated property valuations cited by the Court of Appeals while she was in law school, a decision of the day case in the New York Law Journal, and appellate practice on several cases in the third and fourth departments in the New York State Court of Appeals. And she traveled here today from her farm in upstate New York, and so we also thank her for braving the snow. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to say a few words. Um, at the City Bar, we always like to have a discussion that fairly represents all, all sides of issues and topics whenever possible. So I just want to remind everybody here today um, we will be taking questions, and we ask that you reserve your questions until the end of everybody's presentation. But, but please remember that this is a polite and respectful forum where we can hear from different sides of the aisle. 
And it's okay to ask challenging questions as long as they are on topic, but, but please speak politely and, and give everybody the consideration and respect that they're due. So without further ado, I'd like to ask uh, Lori to start her presentation. And thank you all again. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, you know what? I'll, I'll sit down. <laughs> I, I have to read a disclaimer first. Um, the views and opinions that I express today are my own and should not be attributed to the New York City Bar or my, my employer. In order to understand the current debate about the labeling of plant-based alternative foods using the words milk and cheese in similar terms in product names, it's important to understand the meaning and the history of the term standard of identity. That's a term used in the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. A standard of identity is a rule that sets out what ingredients a food product must contain, which ingredients it may contain, and any requirements for manufacturing. And there are a few hundred standards of identity in the um, regulations. And here's an example of one for maple syrup. You can see at the beginning it says that it's the liquid food derived by concentration and heat treatment of the sap of the maple tree or by solution in water of maple sugar made from such sap. And then it says that it has to contain at least 66% by weight of soluble solids derived solely from sap. And then it goes on to say that you can add water to it, and you can also add salt, chemical, preservatives, and defoaming agents. So the, the definition of a standard of identity is pretty straightforward. But to understand the debate, I want to give you some history about where this term came from. And to do that, I'll take you back to March 22nd, 1857. And just to give you some context, the construction of Central Park was just beginning that year. The first Otis elevator in the world was installed at the corner of Broadway and Broome in New York City. And the New York City population was surging. From 1840 to 1850, it went from 313,000 to 516,000. And then um, in 1860, it leapt to 814,000. And as you can imagine, as the population was expanding, Manhattan was losing its farmland. So we, were, we relied more and more on food coming from outside of the city to feed the population. 1857 is also significant because that's when Borden started manufacturing condensed milk. Up until the mid-1800s, most Americans were getting their milk products from butter, um, cheese, and something called clabbered milk, which is sort of like a yogurt-like substance that's sour. Um, and that's partly because the milk bottle hadn't been invented yet, so we were eating preserved products, and um, refrigeration wasn't in wide use. Um, and Americans' consumption in the 1800s was about a third of a pint per day, um, and that included milk used in cooking, coffee, and tea. 
In colonial times, breastfeeding was done for about a year. But then, um, in about 1840, cow's milk started to become something that was given to infants in place of breast milk more and more. Um, the reasons for this are very complicated and nobody quite understands for sure. But if you're interested in, in a really interesting book about the history of, of milk, um, Melanie Dupuis wrote Nature's Perfect Drink, How Milk Became America's Drink. 1857 is also significant because in New York City, it was the year that the New York Times dubbed the Great Swill Milk War. Um, now, what is swill milk? Um, the column distillery was invented in the early 1800s, and that made brewing um, liquors like whiskey easier. And as the byproduct of brewing whiskey, there was this mash um, that was made from grains like barley. And some enterprising farmers decided to hook up their stables, their cow stables, to distilleries and to feed the cows this hot leftover mash that they called swill right when, it, right when they were done using it for the purpose of making liquor. And it was almost all that they were feeding to the cows at that time. So the cows were very sick um, and they became lame. Uh, oh, there's a picture of one of these stables, a, a distillery and cow stable at 39th and 10th. The cows were very lame. Um, they sometimes lost their teeth, they lost their tails, they had a hard time standing up. And, um, and the conditions in the stables were quite bad. Um, this is a picture from the New York, or, or sorry, from um, Frank Leslie's Illustrated News of Henry Berg from the ASPCA inspecting the cows, the swill cow stables. And I'm gonna ask um, Barry to read a letter to the editor that he wrote um, in, 1850, in the 1850s describing the stables. Henry Berg's statement. At Williamsburg, my attendants and myself found in one large stall, stable, according to the admission of the man in charge, 800 cows and oxen, each secured by a short rope about 18 inches long and many confined in stables 30 inches wide, while others stood two together in twice that space, thereby rendering it more difficult and dangerous to the animal to lie down than to stand perpetually month after month. Upon opening the doors of these foul prison houses, midnight darkness and a hot and pestilential vapor arrested our progress for a time. But after causing the window to be opened, we entered, and a spectacle presented itself of filth and wretchedness that beggars all attempts at description. Within were to be seen these uncomplaining, unoffended victims to man's cupidity and cruelty, many of them in a cramped attitude, wallowing in the most disgusting filth, some tied by the neck in their narrow compartments by a rope or chain, others fastened by each horn so as to forbid the least lateral movement. And in the trowel before them was found an acrid swill which, in my belief, no living creature could receive into its stomach without engendering disease. I will not sicken your readers by any further details, but only remind them that the milk of these animals and that of another immense stable in Franklin Avenue, which we also visited in a like condition, 
It's daily served to them in their tea and coffee as pure orange country milk, as indicated by their carts, which stood in the yard. So according to an article in the New York Times, there were 4,000 cows kept in Manhattan and 2,000 were attached to distilleries um, in 1857. And um, the Times estimated that pure country milk accounted for 36 million quarts in 1851 and almost 66 million quarts were swill milk. The so-called swill milk was very thin and of a pale bluish color. In order to disguise its bad qualities, it was um, filled with starch and sugar, flour, plaster of Paris, chalk, eggs, and other things. And people thought that this adulterated milk, this swill milk, was making people sick. 8,000 infants died and their deaths were attributed to swill milk in 1857 in New York City. Um, But we know in hindsight that other things were at play too. The churns that the milk was kept in when it was transported weren't washed regularly. The milk wasn't pasteurized yet. It was being carted around in the summertime in the heat and people weren't washing their hands. Um, In addition to the safety risk, consumers were paying for um, what they thought was good country milk. for something that was of a a much lower quality. So in 1862, New York State passed its first um, milk anti-adulteration law called an act to prevent the adulteration of milk and to prevent the traffic in impure and unwholesome milk. And part of that law required that milk wagons and the churns be labeled accurately with the source of the milk. And it also um, imposed um, a a fine that's worth about $700 a day. And um, it was a misdemeanor if you were caught uh, with adulterated milk. But that law didn't solve the problem because um, there were problems with a a lack of um, enforcement resources. And the Times ran a series of articles about the milk inspectors being paid off. Um, So eventually, New York City banned the swill milk dairies. I started with milk because that's the topic of our presentation tonight. But adulterated food problems in the 1800s weren't limited to milk. In London in 1858, uh, there was a terrible tragedy involving peppermint lozenges. At the time, it was common for candy makers to um, to make the, they'd make their candy with sugar and water and flavoring, but sugar was expensive, so they would add things like plaster of Paris and gypsum to the candy. Um, and in this case, Bradford, the candy maker, sent his assistant to the druggist to get some plaster of Paris. And the druggist said, "Go upstairs to the attic and and go to the barrel in the back." And and he did so, and he got this white substance, and they made the candy. And um, uh, 10 children died and 10 adults died, and they realized the reason why was the plaster of Paris was actually arsenic. Coffee was often adulterated with with, um, roasted beans, um, clay, mahogany, shavings. Um, In fact, 
The first time that a microscope was used to detect food adulteration was used with coffee, and that was 1850. The microscope was invented in 1590. Um, tea was often adulterated, and, and this is really scary. Well, it was mostly imported in those days to America, and um, sometimes the importers would sell us used tea. And in order to conceal the fact that it was used, they would dye it. They would dye it with lead or Prussian blue. So people were drinking poison with their tea. In addition to food adulteration, there are also related problems with medicine. Um, this is a medicine called balsam of whorehound, and it contained opium. And there's no disclosure in this advertisement that it contains opium. And, and, and here's one that clearly discloses that this is cocaine tablets for hay fever, but there's no warning that cocaine is addictive. So a chemist at the USDA was really interested in food adulteration, as were a lot of people. There were a lot of books and articles being written on the topic. But he's credited with the, the um, first federal food adulteration law. Um, his name was Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley. And he got a grant from the US Department of Agriculture for $5,000. And with this grant, he enlisted these um, 20 handsome young men to eat poisons that were commonly used in um, adulterated food products. So they were eating boric acid, um, they were eating formaldehyde, and, um, and the surprising thing is that a lot of people volunteered to be on the poison squad, but the unsurprising thing is that the people who did get chosen got very sick. This was their, this was their uh, slogan, none but the brave can eat the fair. So along with um, Harvey Wiley, Alice Lakey from New Jersey, who was um, the, the chair of a women's club, traveled the country lobbying for the Pure Food and Drug Act. And so did George Thorndike Angel. And I wonder if anybody here knows who he is. I knew you would. <laughs> he was the founder of the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. So the three of them um, were, were credited um, for lobbying on behalf of the act. But industry was also in favor of it too, for the most part. This is a quote from Heinz that said, adulteration created suspicion of the quality and purity of all other products on the market. But as I said, it was introduced in 1903 and it was languishing for a few years. The whiskey producers were uh, against it. And, um, and so were the patent medicine companies. They thought that the government had no business telling what Americans should, should eat and, and what we could take for medicine. So something happened, though, in 1906. A writer wrote a novel about um, uh, some workers who worked in a Chicago stockyard. And would you read a passage from that? Novel about the Chicago stockyards. There was never the least attention paid to what was cut up for sausage. There had come all the way back from Europe old sausage that had been rejected that was moldy and white. It would be dosed with borax and glycerin and dumped into hoppers and made over again for home consumption. There would be meat that had tumbled out on the floor in the dirt and sawdust where the workers had tramped and spit uncounted billions of consumption germs. 
There would be meat soared in great piles and rooms, and the water from leaky roofs would drip over it, and thousands of rats would race about on it. It was too dark in these storage places to see well, but a man could run his hand over these piles and sweep of handfuls of the dry dung of rats. These, ra these rats were nuisances, and the packers would put poison bread out for them. They would die, and then rats, bread, and meat would go into the hoppers together. Yeah, does, does anyone recognize what that's? Yeah. <laughs> The Jungle, yeah. So the Doubleday published the, the full Jungle in February 1906. And um, within four months, the Pure Food and Drug Act had passed because meat consumption had dropped to about half um, after in the months following the publication. So the original Pure Food and Drug Act, which no longer exists, was formally an act for preventing the manufacture, sale, or transport of adulterated or misbranded or poisonous or deleterious foods, drugs, medicines, and liquors, and for regulating traffic therein and for other purposes. And it was pretty short. It's only about two pages long. And um, it didn't contain anything at that time like standards of identity. But the USDA realized that having standards of identity, baseline standards, would help them determine and enforce the law against food adulteration. If you think back to that definition of maple sugar, uh, or sorry, maple syrup, it's very helpful to know that you've got to have at least 66% of the weight being um, from the maple tree. If it's more than that, if you have more water that any, and the um, percentage dips down, then it's easy to tell that, that it doesn't meet the food standard and it's been adulterated. Um, and at that time, the food standards um, in 1919 also had standards for goat's milk, ewe's milk, um, and et cetera, as they, as they called it in, this, in the circular. Um, but the USDA didn't have any statutory authority to issue these food standards. And so the federal courts weren't certain whether they really had authority to be doing this. Um, in Missouri, the, US, the, the district court held that the USDA food standards were not controlling. In Ohio, the district court held that they were controlling. And in Minnesota, uh, the court held that any reasonable standard would be okay, even if it conflicts with the USDA standards. In, um, circular 136. In addition to not having clear statutory authority um, to issue food standards, the Pure Food and Drug Act didn't cover cosmetics, and they were being increasingly used. Um, and it also didn't cover ads, like this is an ad for soap that claims to wash away fat. <laughs> so in 1938, FDR signed into um, uh, he, he signed into law the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which is what we have today. And the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act um, authorizes, expressly authorizes the Secretary of the Food and Drug Administration to issue standards of identity. And it also says that a food is uh, deemed to be misbranded if it purports to be or is represented as a food which a definition and standard of identity has been prescribed by regulation. But there was a problem with these standards of identity. Um, there was a concern that they were limiting innovation. In 1966, 
50% of foods in supermarkets were covered by a standard of identity. And um, I haven't been able to find a statistic about what it is today, but it's a substantially lower fraction. Um, and in uh, 1969, the White House had a conference on food, nutrition, and health. You can see Pat Nixon greeting Girl Scouts who were attending the conference. And members of the conference had some recommendations for uh, guidelines for federal action. Um, they said that the food standards should provide maximum flexibility and incentive for the marketing of new variations and new food to the public. They should provide a wider consumer choice of foods. And the label or labeling of a food should bear whatever information relating to its composition and nutritional properties is important and useful to consumers. So remember the pure, the, um, the, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed in 1938. In 1972, the FDA got around to proposing a new standard of identity for milk and cream. There hadn't been one since the, um, since the circular in 1919. And the Federal Register notice cited the findings of the White House Conference on Food, Nutrition, and Health. And this is what resulted. It says that milk is the lacteal secretion, practically free from colostrum, obtained from the complete milking of one or more healthy cows. It's similar to the original 1919 um, uh, food standard. But now it allowed for, now it had specifications for solid and fat content. It allows for the addition of vitamins A and D expressly. It allows for other optional ingredients such as fruit, natural, and artificial food flavorings. So you can see that that's kind of their idea of innovation and carriers for vitamins A and D. And um, it also required specifications for labeling. And the FDA also passed by regulation um, labeling requirements. And also in 1990, just related to this, um, Congress passed the Nutritional Labeling Health and Education Act, which changed the information that was available to consumers of food products. You can see a label that's pre-FDA regulation requiring ingredients be listed on labels and pre the Nutritional Labeling Health and Education Act. Um, all that it says is milk chocolate with vanillin, an artificial flavoring. And that's from 2002, and you can see the nutrition facts label and it's probably hard to see but they've actually got uh, the sub ingredients of milk chocolate spelled out in a parenthetical um, so you know that you know exactly what's in there so um, with that I'm going to turn it over to Nigel who'll bring you up to date on the current debate about food standards and the labeling of innovative food products thank you Laurie for that uh, the history lesson that was very interesting. Um, I should give the same disclaimer that Lori just gave, though I've represented the Good Food Institute in, in court and uh, before the FDA. Um, I'm here speaking for myself. My views don't represent the Good Food Institute or any of my other clients or anything like that. Um, so I'm, I'm here to talk about the, the kind of current debate over naming plant-based alternatives like soy milk, almond milk, soy yogurt, cashew cheese, what have you, um, using dairy terms. Um, but before I, want, before I get into that, I actually want to um, go back in time like Lori did and, and talk about a little history, um, because I think it's, it's informative here. Um, dairy farmers for a long time have been opposed to 
changes in the American diet that would minimize the share of milk and milk fat in particular um, in the American diet. Um, it's kind of a, a theme throughout history going back to the time that Laurie was talking about the 19th century through today. I'm going to talk about a few examples of that first. Um, so um, I'm going to start in 1860-something in, in France, where a French scientist, um, whose name I can't pronounce, um, was commissioned by Napoleon to come up with an alternative to butter that would be cheaper and could feed the working classes and the soldiers. Um, and um, what he came up with, made from beef fat, beef tallow, um, is margarine, oleomargarine, as it was called back then. Um, that made its way across the Atlantic in, in about 1870, and here in New York, a New York inventor patented a process for making this margarine out of vegetable oils as well as, as animal fats. Um, and the dairy farmers did not like this. They went to Albany, they went to the, the state legislature here, um, and they banned margarine in the state of New York completely. Um, that got challenged in court and made it way all the way up to the highest court in the state, the, the New York Court of Appeals, um, which said, no, you, you can't just ban a product just because it's new and, and you don't like it. Um, there has to be a good reason. Um, of course, that didn't stop the dairy industry from doing the same thing in other states and eventually made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they struck it, those state bans down as an interference with um, interstate commerce. Um, just a quick question. How many of the audience here is, is lawyers, and how many are... Raise your, raise your hand, show of hands. Lawyers? Okay, pretty much everyone. All right, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep on talking about the, the legal precedents also. Um, so the dairy industry didn't stop with banning margarine. Once, once that was thrown out by the courts, they took more interesting approaches. In, in certain states, they required that margarine be colored, strange colors like pink or, or brown or black. So if you can imagine spreading pink margarine on your, your toast in the morning, um, you can kind of see what they were getting at. Now, there is a consumer protection angle here, um, because as, as Lori told you, you know, things weren't really sold in nice, neatly labeled packages at the time. Um, so if you had margarine, which in its normal natural state is white, if you had that colored yellow and passed off as butter, that could be a serious deception issue. So it's not like there was nothing there. But to have it colored pink um, was kind of a transparent attempt to make consumers disgusted by the product. That made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you can't force margarine producers to adulterate their product just to make it look bad. Um, so um, they didn't stop there, though. <laughs> um, the next approach was taxing margarine at an extremely high rate of tax, and what they did, this was at the federal level, they imposed a high excise tax on margarine that was colored yellow, um, and all of their margarines, that, if they weren't colored yellow, were taxed at a much lower rate. So basically for about 70 years, uh, margarine wasn't sold if it was colored yellow, um, but the manufacturers um, did sell margarine that was, colored, that was in its natural state white with yellow food coloring. So I guess if you were a homemaker, you could take this product home, mix the food coloring in with the margarine yourself, wondering all the while why they can't just do this in the factory, um, and then serve that to your family, and it'll, it'll have that nice, pleasant yellow color that, that butter does. Um, 
So uh, that was the law until about 1955 when they decided to get rid of those, those silly taxes. Um, and now uh, another example. Has anyone here, some of you here probably have, heard of filled milk? Do you know what that means, filled milk and filled cheese? So filled milk and filled cheese were products also that were developed in the 19th century um, where you take skim milk, which in many instances is kind of a waste product from dairy farms once the valuable milk fat has been skimmed off. Um, sometimes there's just not much of a market for it. Um, so you take that skim milk and you add vegetable oil to it. Um, and you make cheese out of that. Um, so it's kind of like a, uh, an, it is kind of an imitation cheese product. Um, and uh, the dairy farmers went to Washington and got a really high tax put on that and you basically didn't see it for the next 80 years. Um, the tax was eventually repealed in I think 1974 or thereabouts, um, but um, the product really never took off. Um, filled milk was a very different story. Um, in this case, this was in the early 20th century, a, a company developed a product that was skim milk mixed with coconut oil. Um, and uh, dairy farmers didn't really want to take any chances with this product. They went to the federal Congress, convinced them that basically children would die if they could consume this product because of these new substances they had discovered called vitamins. Um, and um, so Congress banned the sale of that product in interstate commerce. Um, that ban made its way up to the Supreme Court twice in a case um, that'll take you back to law school, Caroline Products, with its famous footnote number four, um, setting out the, the constitutional standards of, of different tiers of scrutiny. Um, and this was when the court was moving away from kind of the Lochner era of interfering with economic regulations. And they said, it's fine if you want to ban filled milk. Um, Congress decided that this product was basically poison and we're not gonna second guess Congress on that. So um, that, um, that ban stood until uh, a district court actually struck it down as unconstitutional in 1972 and FDA did not appeal that decision. Um, so um, this product is, is apparently still on the market. I, I haven't really seen it. It's, it's known as Mill Knot. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's, it's like a canned evaporated milk substitute. Skim milk and vegetable oil, there you go, filled milk. Um, so in the 1970s, we also learned uh, a bit about uh, the public health implications of consuming a lot of saturated fat. Um, and consumers began to be interested in consuming lower fat products or fats, products with less saturated fat. Um, and here, the, the dairy industry was not too keen on this um, and wasn't too keen on products that are alternatives to cheese and butter that are, and, and yogurt that are low fat products. Um, and they fought against using dairy terms on those products. They wanted you know, these, these products to have fanciful made up words to describe them like Golana or Anna cheese or such, other words you've, you've never heard of because they never got adopted. Um, they fought that fight through the 80s um, until the 1990 Nutrition Labeling and Education Act um, that Lori just mentioned. Um, and then FDA passed regulations saying you can call it low-fat cheddar if you want or non-fat cheddar. I'm not really sure what cheese is if there's no fat in it, but um, you can actually buy products that, that call themselves that 
um, in the supermarkets today. Um, so that more or less brings us up to the present. Um, the late 1990s, uh, soy milk uh, started to kind of take off as um, not just a hippie food, but kind of a mainstream everyday grocery store food um, that you see at you know big brand name supermarkets. Um, and then more recently, almond milk has, has gotten really popular, um, as well as uh, other plant-based alternatives like soy cheeses, uh, nut cheeses, soy yogurt, etc. Um, and the dairy industry has has been against the use of these these terms, um, the, any use of, of dairy terms in the labeling or advertising of these products. Um, and I think you know the the history really shows to some degree that this isn't really about consumer protection. Um, it's really more, in my view, about economic protection of, of uh, dairy interests. Um, you know, it's, it's, in my view, putting a, a thumb on the scales of the free market um, and, and, and trying to make sure that these products can't really compete on a, on a level playing field, um, whether it's, you know, a tax or a ban or, uh, you know, coloring requirement or what have you, or, or just trying to regulate the very language that these products use. Um, I think it's uh, it's fine if you want to debate the merits of plant-based products, if you want to say they're less nutritious or more nutritious or, or what have you. But to, to have the government come in and and fight that fight for you is, is kind of where I take the issue with this. Um, I take a larger issue with it also, just as a matter of language. Um, it's entirely natural when language develops for us to come up with new words that piece together uh, parts of different words that, that they kind of remind us of. Um, you know, we, everyone knows what I mean when I say the word butter, right? I'm referring to the butter that's turned from cow's cream and, and turns into this buttery yellow substance. Um, but no one is confused when I say the words peanut butter or cashew butter or cocoa butter um, everyone knows what I mean when I say cream. It's the milk fat that you've taken out of, of whole milk. But no one takes issue with me when I say coconut cream or uh, cream of tomato soup. Um, probably have some other examples. Non-dairy creamer, for example. Uh, it's a product that's been on the market for a while. Um, creamed corn, cream of wheat. Um, just kind of coming up with these off the top of my head. You can probably come up with some examples yourself. Um, and then milk. I mean, Lori explained the standard of identity for milk is the lacteal secretion, basically practically free of colostrum obtained from milking one or more healthy cows. But that doesn't preclude, as Lori identified, uh, goat milk or, or sheep's milk. Uh, coconut milk has been around for a while. Almond milk has actually been, in, the, in Western civilization, drunk since the, the Middle Ages. Um, back before we had refrigeration, before it was hard to get milk in the cities, you would take some almonds, put them in boiling water, and you'd have a milky substance to use in cooking. And we'd call it almond milk, and not just in English. Um, you can find it in the Oxford English Dictionary back in the 14th century. But also in French, it's, it's uh, milk of almonds, literally, in German and, and Italian. 
Um, soy milk is really more of a recent import. We didn't really have soy milk in, in Europe in the Middle Ages um, because we didn't have soybeans. Um, but in China and Japan and Korea, that's what they called it, literally translated, soy milk, or bean milk, actually. Um, so you see it across languages, you see it um, across a, a whole bunch of different products, and it's only natural to, to use language in this way. Um, and personally, I think that, uh, that food producers should be allowed to use the very same linguistic constructs, the very same words and language that consumers know and that consumers recognize. Um, if, if you were to force a product to call itself soy drink or bean juice or whatever name uh, is proposed for these, these products, um, consumers who know it as soy milk will say, wait, what is this? Is this an inferior product? Uh, I remember as a, as a kid being amused by the name Yoohoo chocolate drink because I recognized like this is something inferior to chocolate milk, right? And it was. It, it's 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 not chocolate milk. It's chocolate drink, and it's basically got no nutritional value. Um, certainly much less than than chocolate milk. Um, and and people kind of get a sense of the the products from from how they're labeled and how they're named. Um, and it it really does seem to be an attempt me to kind of kneecap the, the, the competition, uh, put, put a, a burden on, on plant-based competitors um, that doesn't exist for the dominant industry in this, in this sector, which, which is dairy. Um, so I, I've, I've briefly addressed the, the standard of identity issue um, that, that Lori was discussing. Um, and I, I would like to say that when you say the word milk, that is the standard of identity for milk. Everyone knows what that is. But when you add another word in front of it, that's not a violation of the standard of identity, right? Adding chocolate in front of milk doesn't violate the standard of identity for milk, because you know it's something different. It's chocolate milk. FDA actually said this when they were creating the standard of identity for milk. And the same thing for goat milk. Not the same as cow milk doesn't violate the standard of identity for milk because everyone knows that it's a different product. Same the same is true for soy milk and almond milk. Um, now there's, there's a fight that's, that's playing out right now um, in court. Um, this has actually been, th these issues have been in courts before, mainly in California where they have the so-called food court um, where plaintiffs, lawyers sue over any and every labeling issue under the sun. Um, but um, claims have been brought in the past about soy milk and almond milk alleging that they're violating a standard of identity, or alternatively, that these are not proper, what's called common or usual names um, under the FDA, uh, the, under the Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act. Um, and um, each of these lawsuits so far has been dismissed at the pleading stage, um, alleging violations of, of FDA labeling law um, under the standards of identity and common or usual name allegations. So the plaintiff's lawyers lost those cases under those theories, so they've now moved on to a new theory, which is that um, these plant-based alternatives should be labeled imitation. They should be called soy milk and almond milk 
and coconut milk and presumably goat milk and sheep's milk and all that. should all be called imitation milk because they have different nutrition from cow's milk. Um, and uh, I've kind of already given away my view on the, on the matter. This is, this is a, a total distortion of the, what, is, what is a legitimate statute, the imitation statute, um, which was uh, designed to counteract the sort of swill milk issues that, that Laurie was talking about. The, um, the dilution of a product like maple syrup so that it doesn't have the same nutrition, or the modification of a product, you know, taking, taking the milk fat out of a product, replacing it with vegetable oil, and not telling people that that's what you've done. That's what the, the imitation provision was designed to do. You almost never see products on the market today labeled imitations because it really doesn't apply as long as the consumer knows exactly what they're getting. Um, when you sell someone soy milk, they know what they're getting. When you sell someone almond milk, they know what they're getting. They're not imitations, they're, they're separate, they're distinct foods. Um, and uh, the, the brief that uh, we recently filed in the Ninth Circuit makes this point and cites a whole bunch of case law, um, most of it from the 1970s when the imitation provision actually you know, was used sometimes. Um, it really hasn't been used much in the past 30, 40 years. Um, but this is kind of a, a last ditch um, argument um, for uh, modifying the, the common and usual names that, that producers actually use on these products. Um, well, it's, it's not exactly the last ditch, though, because pending before Congress right now, um, proposed, but I don't, I don't think it's gotten a hearing yet, before any committee is what's known as the Dairy Pride Act. Um, and that legislation would amend the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to um, prohibit the use of any dairy terms on a product that is not a dairy product. Um, and um, I don't think that legislation is going anywhere, but uh, keep an eye out for it um, going forward because if, if uh, the current court challenges don't pan out. It's kind of uh, the last last resort. There's also the petition that we filed pending before FDA. Um, and in that petition, um, GFI is asking for uh, a much broader view on this topic, um, not just about milk and dairy, but when you call something a veggie burger or when you call something turkey bacon or veggie bacon, when you call something... Uh, Rye bread, there's a standard, of identity, a standard of identity for bread that requires wheat flour, but if you say rye bread or, or gluten-free bread, gluten-free pasta, all these things, by the same theory that soy milk and almond milk are imitations, all these things violate the standards for, uh, for bread and burger and, and bacon and everything you can imagine. I mean, the, the sheer chaos that this theory would create if, if applied across the market is just unimaginable. There are so many products that we have named uh, to name them after other products that they remind us of. Language is messy, you know. It it has, uh, you know, I, I can't even begin to describe um, how how complex and how many different words that our language has adapted to describe other things in terms of other things. It's um, 
but I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit away from my point here um, and running out of time. So um, I'll wrap up um, by saying that um, there's a constitutional argument to be made here. Um, under the modern definition of commercial free speech, um, soy milk and almond milk, these are you know, names that uh, producers have a right to use. They have a free speech right to reuse. Um, and requiring them to, to label themselves with, with uh, a different name, um, a name that no one understands, um, it's under the four-point central Hudson test. It's, not it's especially not jumping to the end. It's not narrowly tailored. It's not direct. Um, it doesn't directly address the, the whatever problem um, uh, this is supposed to be addressing, which is, uh, I think, legitimate, the legitimate problem would be preventing consumer deception. There's no consumer deception here. Um, nutrition, to some degree, is already addressed by the nutrition facts label. Um, that's kind of the more narrow means to inform people about nutritional qualities of products. Um, and so, um, if you're interested in that, uh, read our briefs on the matter. <laughs> Thank you, Nigel, for your presentation. Yes, okay. absolutely. <laughs> All right, good. Yes, um, it's really an honor to be here. Um, it's very rare that we from rural New York ever get a chance to speak here in New York City, um, there have been a number of food conferences where we've submitted proposals to speak and have been told that they're really not that interested in, in uh, commodity foods or what's happening in rural. It's more about you know farmers markets and you know more of the local food movement. Um, it, it's especially an honor for me because growing up, um, we felt a very strong connection to New York City. Um, the, we are part of what is known as the New York City Milk Shed, um, and this is a region that supplies the city with what is called a fresh milk product. We have very um, detailed rules governing the transport of milk, the freshness, you know, the quality, the protein content and all of that. Um, when we were kids and the milk truck driver said that the milk was going to New York City, us we children would run up and down the barn pretending to tap dance, saying we're on Broadway. We would hold out sticks and introduce the cows and say, what's your favorite Broadway show? Uh, you know, we, we just really, you know, and we, for years we thought we were better than the other farmers in other regions because our milk went the milk from our farm went to New York City. So um, there was a strong connection between New York City and upstate New York through the era of the Depression era. Uh, Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia uh, personally involved himself in coming to rural New York to ensure a fair price for the dairy farmers. Um, Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia at one point uh, brought together the um, Borden's, Borden's dealers and the Sheffield that you saw on the slides um, into negotiations held in New York City to set fair prices and fair treatment of the farm community in rural New York. Over time though, the um, New York City community began to demand cheaper and cheaper milk, um, cheaper products. Um, into the late 90s, um, there, there was an attempt by the dairy farmers to set a pricing scheme to kind of stabilize milk prices. The New York Times editorialized that this would be a dairy cartel, that the dairy farmers could, could rule New York City, I don't know you know, how we would do that, but, um, um, you know, the, the, um, the um, gist was that we don't care as long as milk is cheap, um, even if it comes from large-scale corporate farms. If you guys can't compete, that is your problem. Um, things have changed somewhat. I see a turning point the day the World Trade Center went down. Um, there were things happening in the city, and I, I attended the New York State Yogurt Summit, 
um, I sat next to guys from Cornell who told me that um, within hours they had been summoned to determine how much food New York City had in the event that there would be any further incidents. Um, the food movement has started to open up a little bit to inviting us to talk with them. I, have, I spoke at um, Northeast Sustainable Agriculture Working Group, which is a um, more of an urban group in Baltimore um, this past year, and you know we received a warm welcome, and I was able to um, bring in commodity farmers from other commodities, including the, the um, poultry producers. So I think that um, I'd like to give you a little more information about your, your milk shed. Um, you are primarily a region of small farms. The average size in New York is 113 cows, 4,000 farms, Pennsylvania, 7,000 farms, average of 70 cows, um, New England, um, several hundred farms there, similar sizes. Yes, we do have some large farms. Um, nature of the land resources, seven million acres of land, a very powerful landscape with fully a third of that devoted to perennial pasture and woodlot. The New York City watershed is serviced by uh, farms. Um, you do not have filtration of your water, it is so pure that it comes from the watershed, a big chunk of it which is devoted to um, farmland. In fact, the New York City Watershed Agricultural Council and New York City Department of Environmental Protection are in Europe today speaking at World um, Water Day on science-based land protection. Um, I wanted you to know that we as dairy farmers have long maintained detailed standards in terms of our production. I'm passing this as around. Um, we produce milk with a certain, every cow is measured to know how much butter fat is in the milk, precisely how much protein, how much the cow gives. Um, this is a, like a computerized sheet, um, which you could share um, from one of my friends who um, just emailed it over to me before I left so that I could show you. Um, I, am a, I, I also have to dis give the disclaimer, my views are not necessarily the views of my employer. I'm assistant county attorney for Herkimer County, and I also um, have a private practice serving dairy farmers and, um, and food people, food, food interested people. Um, I have not spoken about this much upstate, but I am also a licensed cheesemaker. I've cert received certification to make cheeses at the University of Vermont at Burlington. Um, and there I learned about standards of identity as they're put into place around the world. Uh, milk is a very special product. Um, it is not a few um, ingredients mixed with water, stabilizers, fluids, and emulsifiers, whiteners to produce a product that you can pour on your cereal. It is a natural product, and standards have been identified um, around the world um, through, through the input of dairy farms, um, dairy processors, industry. Um, when I talk, I, am, I can say that I believe that I'm representing the views of dairy farmers, and yes, we do take our profession seriously. I'm looking at dairy farmers around the world, 120 million of us, 73 million in, in India, 1.3 million in China, 3 million in the former Soviet Union. Um, we are seeing at this point the rise of the mega farms. The largest farms in the world are being built in China, 100,000 cow farm going in on the border of Russia, Saudi Arabia, dairy farms popping up in the desert. Um, even Vietnam is a 30,000 cow dairy farm, um, and whereas we in the United States are losing farmers very rapidly. Um, we, we are very supportive, and I learned through my cheese making process a lot of detail about the standards ident of identity. So in the petitioner's brief, they go kind of through this lexicon of words, you know, pulling words out of dictionaries here and there, and Chinese words and, you know, uh, words from almond milk and historical words, but there's really no need for that. We have standards of identity developed internationally by the Codex Elementarius Commission. This is a commission created in 1962 to administer world food standards, 164 members from around the world, scientists, dairy scientists, food scientists, 
develop food, food definitions by consensus. Um, I was able to um, take a look at some of the other, um, other countries and how they are dealing with this issue. Um, I wanted to show you, here's, here's a book from my cheese making course. This is a book that deals with standards of identity, details for blue cheese alone. We're talking dairy blue cheese, not cheese, blue cheese made out of algae or cashew nuts or any other product. We're talking dairy blue cheese. Um, Canada does, has uh, much more stringent labeling, um, or more, they, they identify with milk as a product of a dairy cow, lacteal secretion is the normal lacteal secretion. I spoke with council's office at Dairy Canada. The same almond purported pseudo milk in the United States is labeled as almond drink in, the, in Canada and the UK. Um, they do not allow this, this um, you know, naming by reference. Um, if you're going to sell it, sell it as almond drink. It's on the shelves there. So you can see almond breeze in label one way here in the United States. If I drive a few hours north over into Ontario, it'll show, it'll be, appear differently there. Um, through my Twitter account, my UK dairy farmer friend sent me pictures in the UK. It's the same thing. Um, European Union has just ruled against um, modifying dairy names by adding on veggie cheese, veggie cream cheese, veggie this, veggie that, um, noting that um, the application of a, a dairy name cheese is to be designated reserved by EU law for animal products. And this was a case called Tofu Town in which um, attorneys from Greece, Italy, and German um, submitted backup briefs to the European Union asking that the standards of identity for true dairy be upheld. I also took a look at India because I, it is a particular area of interest of mine and I found, um, I, I went on the online and I copied off the regs there, same thing. Um, the only modifier was raw milk because of the um, sale of raw milk throughout India. Um, I, Chinese in, um, I found the Chinese standards, very detailed standards in China, um, especially in light of their uh, problems that they've had with, um, uh, I guess, melamine being added to milk or things like that. Um, in order to export into China, there are very, very detailed um, regulations on what, and now you speak Chinese? I do. Okay, good. Yeah, so I, I, I thought I'd maybe show it to you at some point. But, um, you know, the details were all related to a dairy milk product. So I can say that it, it, is, it is the standards that have been set in the United States by the secretary who then delegates th their, uh, to whatever entity to determine the standards of identity. Um, so I, the, the standard where you then add a modifier would, rent, would really kind of render the, the, the standards of identity moot. So, so the, the brief also mentioned, or the petitioner's brief also mentioned um, the reasonable consumer here and there. The reasonable consumer would understand this or that. Well, I've practiced in front of many administrative agencies. The standard is set by, by experts in their field, um, say in the area of environmental law. It's not the reasonable polluter who determines the standard, and it's not, not the reasonable restaurant owner who determines the standard. Standards are set by, by experts. and. This is, this is the, how administrative law normally goes on. I think it would create chaos to begin the reference naming. Um, you know, and we already are seeing that. I've had consumers ask me, is, is almond milk, does that mean it has almonds, almond flavoring mixed into the milk? So that's one take that, you know, someone asked me. But there is confusion in the marketplace as to nutritional standards. Um, I did, and I, do, I did pick up a brief on the internet, which I would like the Bar Association to post as a resource alongside the brief of the petitioner. Um, in terms of the nutritional content, um, there, there have not been any, any standardized um, rules or regulations uh, determining uh, you know, what, when you, 
you know, what is the, con what is the content of, say, almond milk um, versus, you know, in dairy cow milk, you can know exactly what it is. Um, I did find a study, if any of you are interested in it. It's not a dairy universe, dairy funded study, to my knowledge. Um, it was based out of um, McGill University, and it was comparing plant-based alternatives sparing nutritionally compared to cow's milk. Um, so it was trying, it said there, popularly advertised as healthy and wholesome, but little research has been done in terms of understanding the nutritional implications of consuming these milk products, these milk beverages in short term or long term. Consumers associate the alternatives as a direct substitute of cow's milk, which might not be true in all cases. So you would really need to, as a consumer, be extremely knowledgeable or really study your labels to determine if what you're pouring on your kid's cereal is the nutritional equivalent of a certain dairy, you know, a certain dairy product. Um, there was something else that I caught in the brief when I was um, looking at it last week. Um, one thing is that this is um, somehow the dairy farmers sticking to their guns on terms of labeling our product is somehow um, hurting small innovators. I think that's very far from the truth. The, the people who are investing in some of these product is, uh, products are among some of the wealthiest men in the world. We have Bill Gates and the own Lee Ka-shing. Uh, some of the PayPal executives are investing in the, the new product, the uh, laboratory brewed product called Perfect Day. Um, and this is a this will be a proprietary project, proprietary uh, type of product that is not um, the I guess what we would call open source technology like the dairy cow that is used around the world from India to the United States. Um, I also the Good Food Institute likes to tweet. They they frequently tweet about Tyson Foods is launching is getting into to uh, plant based uh, global leaders. This large scale company is getting into that. So. I, I work with the farmers and the ranchers. We are not globalized corporations. We are people who believe in the integrity of our product and we intend to defend it. Um, I also believe there's a good deal of misrepresentation on the labels of some of the plant-based products. Um, food systems are complex. Food, fiber, fodder, forest, and in the case of New York City, filtration. I have noticed on some of the labels, um, comments like I saw on the Perfect Day website, milk, is an industrial product, and they show a picture of, of uh, 100 cows on, a, on this, this, this rotating um, milking parlor. But it, but it is not in New York. It is the product of the land, the lands that serve your own watershed. Um, I've seen some of these products labeled as purely vegan. Okay, well, almonds, my friend just returned from California. Two-thirds of the volume of the almond is a, is a husk, which is ground up and sold for cow feed, and the remainder being mixed in with the other, other um, things to make a pseudo-milk. I don't see how that's vegan. I also do not, um, there's something that I am not very um, in favor of, as um, when I read, when my resume was read, I represented an endangered insect in New York. We are seeing 60% of the nation's bees hauled to California every year to pollinate the massive almond groves. Our beekeeper believes, and I've talked to many other beekeepers, that this tends to congregate bee problems, bee illnesses, shared all in one spot in the five or six counties that produce almonds in California, creating havoc in some of the ecosystems here in New York State. Um, the new product, Oatly, I spoke with them. I asked them what they do with the, um, re the remainder of the oats after they run it through their, their um, pseudo-milk processing unit. They said they send it out to be fed to pigs. So I don't see how some of these products are truly separate from animal agriculture, as portrayed in the label. 
Um, I would also say that yes, the terms have been going on for a long time in the United States, the knocking down of our standards of identity, but that, that's really not a reason to now allow the terms to be used. Um, yes, the United States is probably the weak link in the chain of labeling of true foods. Um, we, are also, we are also the country where we don't have country of origin labeling on our meat, where you as a consumer can't know what country your meat comes from. When you go to the grocery store, it could be a mix of burger from Argentina, Brazil, the United States, or wherever. Um, we are also a country that is you know, negotiating to, uh, bring, to do uh, chicken in China. We're also a country where the antitrust considerations have gotten so out of hand in the United States that a handful of companies control a good portion of our food supply. I listened to testimony at the antitrust hearings in agriculture. Walmart controls 25% of the retail food sales at this point. Um, four beef companies control. Um, we've seen exposés on fake organic coming in from overseas. We're also witnessing an infrastructure that is being created up and down the East Coast, the increase in refrigeration capacity to increase foods coming in from overseas, primarily cheaper fruits and vegetables. So I don't think that just because these products have been named and used the, used the reference names for you know, 20 years that that's really a reason to back down on our standards. I don't, um, I do have a, um, a few recommendations. I think I'm running out of time here. Um, You're good. I'm still good, okay. Um, I wanted to say that um, I do have a few words to um, urban people who are interested in food. Um, first of all, I would like to say, let us, let us dairy farmers compete on an equal playing field. We are highly regulated in terms of the names we use, the percentage of fat, the, the percentage of protein, the percentage of moisture, um, anything added to make the cheese, uh, to make the dairy product. It's the Wild West in terms of the dairy products. I spoke with some of or the, the pseudo products. I spoke with some of the processors who told me that it's very easy to um, switch over to, to make another product. You don't have to really say, well, how many almonds? Is it six almonds, eight, ten, five? Is it two percent almonds? How many, how many peas go into it? Oats is at 260 a bushel now, so for eight cents you can mix a pound of oats with, um, with fluids and you know, filter it or do whatever it is to, to make a product. I don't see how that's a level playing field. We're also looking at global markets. We are constantly told as dairy farmers that you have to produce cheaper and cheaper if you want to compete on global markets. So we, we have tried to compete on global markets, but we need to comport with the standards that are commonly used globally. Um, for example, from my own little small town, uh, Mercer's ice cream was exporting to China some ice cream. There's a pure dairy ice cream mixed with wine, a wine-flavored ice cream that is, that is being sold and brings economic value back to our community. Um, and, and I also, the, we listen to some of the entities kind of hector us for standing up to what we believe in terms of our, whether it's a standard for meat, whether it's a standard for, standard for milk. And yes, we are talking to our legislators, as is the right of every, every constituent to speak to their legislators. And I will be speaking to Senator Gillibrand about the Dairy Pride Act after I listen to the Good Food Institute's CEO on the radio who um, was doing a podcast um, and spoke about how one of the goals is to rid the planet of, of um, livestock, of farmers. It really seemed very brutal that, that we should lose our entire living, we should lose our lands, we should lose our farms. Our profit margins are razor thin as it is. Um, I, I would like to see um, more due process for farmers and, and food people, not, not just our farmers, but other people who are in the food supply chain. You know, small people who are trying to start to produce, uh, people here in the New York City food shed. 
Um, I would like to see more dialogue like this where we can get a chance to come in and talk about our concerns and say about what is happening in rural New York or rural Pennsylvania. We've had three farmers, so three people in the dairy community commit suicide since the beginning of 2018. Maybe you saw the New York Times article. So I will not be hectored for standing up for my views in terms of what a true dairy product is. Um, I would urge you to um, incorporate dairy products in your school. It is a nearby, nearby food. Um, dairy farmers really believe in the whole milk as a true nutritious product for students. Um, I, there was also a beautiful film that was recently produced. It's called Forgotten Farms. It was a film produced by a New York City film producer um, with a Williams College professor. If any of you know of any venues in New York, I would love to have it shown here in the city. It's been shown around the Northeast, and I really you know, think that it's, it's generated some very good discussions. And sometimes I feel that artistic people are better able to tell your story and better able to portray things than you know, we as boring lawyers who you know, are t talking about our legal briefs. Um, and I guess the, I, the thing I would like to close with is that um, as an older farm woman, I have had the opportunity to speak with an author whose name, I don't know if you, any of you read him, Wendell Berry, um, and we have talked about um, the per, a person, you know, so many people live in the cities now, people in the cities becoming, or a certain percentage of people in the cities as urban agrarians, where maybe you don't live on a farm and, and you don't, you know, you don't, you don't really know a lot of farmers, but you are cognizant of where your, you know, where your food comes from, the system that is falling into place in this, in this, not just this country, but globally in terms of food, you know, food production falling into hands of fewer and fewer people, um, where you are aware of, um, you know, maybe, you know, the signals that are being given to farmers and that you, you know, you try to engage. Um, I, there has been a very dangerous divide. Um, I, there is one, like a subcategory of people who are, who are vegans, who are very militant, who, who have no qualms about threatening people or t telling people that their throats will be slit or you will die hanging from a meat hook. You know, any farmer who goes on Facebook will quickly find that if they are too militant, they will be set by comments like this. So I think that we're, our country is becoming more divided and it is up to thinking people to, to try to, to stem that. And I think a conversation like this is a really good place to do it. Thank you. Thank you. At this time, we'll be taking audience questions, um, and I just ask that you let us uh, repeat the questions so that it can be heard by everybody and also we're taping. Uh, yes, in the corner. Yes, uh, with all, um, you spoke passionately about mislabeling of organic products and mm -hmm. uh, just recently today, uh, in New York, so That are, yeah. Um, you know, they, I, the US, they don't have USDA inspection on site. They kind of rely on third party to, to do that inspection over there. Um, I don't know if, if, um, if that will stop any of this. I mean, people find ways to cheat on, on organic all, you know, all of the time. You know, I don't have any, a good answer to that other than that um, I think there should be really good verification of products overseas. 
Um, I was at the NOFA, New York State Organic Farmers Conference last year, and the farmers were complaining, the dairy farmers were complaining that, that organic grain was coming in from overseas and they couldn't compete with it. And then lo and behold, the Washington Post did an expose on it. So I think our journalists are really good in terms of um, alerting people to the possibility of that you know, and trying to um, get better third-party verification overseas. But yeah, I, I don't know what will happen with the tariffs either because you know there could be mass retaliation against um, export of American food products as well. You know, so the stock market tumbled by 700 points today. So we'll see what, what happens tomorrow. I don't know if I have answered your question. I don't really have a no, good answer on that. It's just really not. There's really not really a, a definite, genuine answer to that because just like you said, a lot of, and, and just like she said earlier, these inspections are tainted. Yeah, it's like our, our apple, you know, most of the organic apple juice wine, comes from China. Wine. So, you know, when most most organic apple juice, I saw a chart that uh, someone had done, and, uh, um, you know, so it's hard to believe that um, there would be as adequate inspection. When I was going to cheesemaking school, the professor said that um, she had been to China many times, and the levels of inspection for dairy were so, so horrific that she couldn't believe it, that they had no concept of a lot of safety things. So they were trying to bring American experts in to try to, you know, encourage safety, or, you know, in, say in dairy production. But um, you know, that was my my professor's words, who has been there firsthand and visited farms. So on the organic, um, you know, say the organic grain, it was even just mislabeling. You know, just a, somehow a magic wand happens while it's on on route, and um, you know, it becomes organic by the time it gets here. You know, so. Yeah, no easy answer, but I think the, the media has brought attention to it that, you know, what I had heard a year ago at the conference with farmers grumbling at the Washington Post had come out with, you, you know, a couple, I think it was like a month or so ago. Next question. Yes, Dana. Um, okay, I have a question. It just struck me. So maybe it'd be interesting, I don't really like, have market data, maybe to compare what's happening with Canadian marketing where they're, they have to use the word drink or make up your own name, you know, what, almond breeze or whatever, to, to American. I will say though that for the Northeast in particular though, fluid milk is the key price setter and it is the key 
um, driver of the success of farms in New York because our infrastructure was traditionally geared towards fluid because we are on top of a major marketing area. We are not like California where they could have massive plants producing powder milk to go to China and, and mozzarella cheese for pizza, whatever that pizza hut there, um, or Domino's. Um, they are, you know, it's, it's a different uh, structure here. So taking away uh, sales from farmers in the Northeast has hit the farmers very hard. Um, I can give you one example. When Elmhurst shut its plant down here, 40 farmers in Orange County got pink slips and they had nowhere to market their milk. They said, hey, 30 days, goodbye. Um, so I spoke to the Commissioner of Economic Development for Orange County. They were struggling to try to find some other market. Right now in um, Pennsylvania, 100 farms have been given a pink slip because Dean Food said we can't sell the fluid milk that Walmart has now gotten a. Walmart has built its own plant in Indiana that will be supplied by large farms in the Midwest. Um, we are now bumping you in Pennsylvania because it'll be a lot cheaper to get the milk there through our own plant. So we, there are 100 farms in Pennsylvania now desperately trying to find a place to market the milk. So, so this, the fluid, you know, the dynamics are different in the different regions. So, I, I mean, I was personally very resentful of some of the vegan websites who celebrated. They said, look, what great success. We are now plant-based 100. And they, they quoted the guy at Elmhurst. And, but what they didn't know was that there were, you know, 40 farms in black dirt, Orange County, very wealth, very rich dirt, who are suddenly now right in your own food shed scrambling to survive. So what is so great about that? I, I just don't, you know, so I also can't, I would like to see more honest and appreciation of the food sheds of the North, Northeast. We are sitting on top of 24 million customers in the greater Northeast corridor. We should be able to find people who truly enjoy um, dairy products, whether it's a good, you know, good cheese from your, the Northeast or uh, whether it's milk from one of the farms in your region that's fresh and nearby. Um, so I, there, you know, there's something lacking that the the um, the image of what you have here in the Northeast is not really known in the cities so much, unless you go out and you know, unless you're familiar with the rural, with the rural areas. Um, so I mean, so that's my point of view. The fluid milk is very important. So so yes, if the if the if the vegan militants really want to hurt the farmers, then you can take away fluid milk sales, and it's devastating to the people here in this region. Anything you want to add? Um, well, I, I would add that the um, bring up a good point with the with the European Union and Canada, where they actually have banned names like uh, like soy milk. Um, 2007, I think, was when this actually started. The EU said no dairy terms on anything that's not a dairy product. Um, and then a few years later, they had to go back and say, well, wait, we didn't really mean that because there's peanut butter and there's coconut cream and coconut milk. And in many languages, almond milk is still um, still allowed to be used because it has such a history. Um, across the European Union, soy milk is is not uh, you can't use that term. Um, and it is kind of an experiment. Um, almond milk, even in places where the the name is uh, is now forbidden, is still um, still taking off. You know, in terms of sales, roughly equivalent to what it's doing here. Um, so um, as far as we can tell from the kind of limited data we have of the past few years, um, it's not really affecting the, the shift away. Um, and I, I also looked at, as part of the petition and kind of for my own personal amusement, Google search data to see what people, even when they, the European Union changed the names of these products, see what people actually Google. 
and they still use the, the same language naturally. They still say soy milk even, even though that name is, is outlawed. So um, uh, the EU and Canada don't have the First Amendment like we do. We kind of have a stronger free speech tradition that extends also to commercial speech. Um, and that's why I think this, this kind of uh, experiment will go on and, and we'll see, I guess, what happens. totally a different approach to their dairy farms. They have a thing called supply management where each farm gives, has an allotment of how much they can produce and they pr the prices are set to the dairy farmers. Um, I can drive through Ontario and see really prosperous, lovely farms. I can drive over the border into upstate New York and um, you will see right now we have three million acres of empty farms where the, far the barns are falling down. There's a study called Green Grass, Green Jobs that Cornell did about this. It's real poverty just smashed up towns, um, barns falling apart, fields grown to weeds, it just, um, you know, and, and a lot of hopelessness in those towns that once used to be, you know, associated with strong communities. So d Canada has a very different approach. I mean, you, you just have to drive an hour we to see it.
someone couldn't qualify as milk because they didn't add the vitamin D. A very small producer said we can't afford to buy um, you know a gallon of vitamin D is whatever thousands of dollars to add to the milk so they had a, they had a dispute with that. Yeah so I don't know where that was it a case in Florida maybe. It was a skim milk case so when, when you skim when you skim the cream off milk you take out the vitamin A because it's associated with the with the fat. Was that a Florida um, case? Or do you know that was the Florida case yeah. yeah. Um, and the, uh, this is actually a constitutional law case and kind of one of the foundations of our free speech argument. Uh, the, the, uh, they wanted to sell their natural skim milk without added vitamin A as kind of a natural product that they made on their farm and tell people, yeah, this doesn't have the vitamin A that skim milk has. And the Florida regulators came in and said, no, this is imitation milk and you have to call it imitation milk. Um, so they went to court over that. They sued and they won on a First Amendment argument saying, this product is skim milk. It's, it's, we can inform consumers by saying that there's no vitamin A. Um, it's an absurd intrusion by the state to make us call this an imitation milk product when it's, it's real milk, it's skim milk. Um, and that's what we should be able to call it. And they, they won that case. Thank you for your fun. <laughs> you know, in, in terms of getting into bigger stores, you have to buy the shelf space. They don't just say, oh, here's some shelf space. Um, there, are, there are fees to get on a shelf. So as our food becomes more concentrated and the stores become more concentrated, if you want to get on the shelf in Walmart, 
you have to pay a fee and it kind of precludes it makes it harder and harder for smaller farmers or you know producers to have a, have a shelf space that is a good point I mean I've had uh, vegetable growers who are having trouble getting into Walmart because they're charging a docking fee that in order for you to back your truck up to park to unload they charge you 150 bucks so you know if you're going there a couple times a week you know it can add up to a thousand dollars which for a small farmer is very hard so as we consolidate our food to fewer and fewer major players some of those but in search terms I have no idea and that was like you know I'm, I'm not sure there's there's any real way to, to bring a lawsuit over that um, I, I think that's that's I mean I, I really can't think of a, a theory and, and no I'm not aware of any 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 theory that's been pressed on on shelf space or search terms. like advertising yeah I do see that you have, do you want to have a quick response? Because I do want to get yeah, to some other I, questions. I <laughs> I think this would fall in the FTC's jurisdiction over advertising. That yeah. It just can't be false or misleading. And right. The, the internet, in many respects, is a wild west in that regard. <laughs> Sure. The, the question is whether I've, I've done a detailed look at the, at the data for whether the naming affects actual sales. Um, I haven't done like a scientific study 
of this or anything like that. I haven't seen any such studies done. I've, I've just kind of looked generally at the rough trends. And uh, the increased adoption of plant-based products in Europe is roughly the same as the adoption here, uh, regardless of, of what they're called. Uh, that's just kind of a you know quick and dirty looking at the graphs, not any kind of rigorous statistical analysis. Um, I mean, notwithstanding the free speech issue, this, this, is, uh, this is something that's really already done in practice. Um, and it's mostly to avoid litigation. Um, it's, it usually says prominently, you know, on the front label, non-dairy, um, along so with other... Sure, and um, that may be fair. That may be you know factual and uncontroversial information that we typically say raises fewer constitutional issues to, to force uh, producers to put that on the label. Um, it certainly would raise fewer constitutional issues than just banning the term. And um, I think I think the plant-based industry would welcome that as an alternative. But I don't speak for all of them. Well, I wasn't a hardliner so much until I listened to the podcast that I, that the CEO of the Good Food Institute last week, and I really became a hardliner. Um, no, I listened to them brag about how uh, cellular agriculture, you know, carefully crafted terms, stealing the souls of farmers to pretend to be agriculture, um, is the way of the future. We will eliminate dairy farmers. We will eliminate um, livestock farms. I mean, it, it threatens the entire community, that every farmer in my area will lose everything they have, and this is to be celebrated, I, I, I just don't get into it. And a few death threats to my office after there was an article in the Syracuse paper um, where people called me and told my secretary to let me know my throat will be slit for selling milk or having a dairy farm, which my secretary is not into food whatsoever, and she's like, uh, somebody's saying your throat's going to be slit? I'm like, you know, so there is this... This attitude now that um, the farms are no good, um, that we, you know, we were polluters, you know, every other breath is, if you look on social media, you know, from some of the groups, so, so I have actually become more of a hardliner. difficult to you know to build your own processing plant you know it costs a couple hundred thousand dollars to build a plant I mean there are very few true farmers who are who produce cheese farmstead cheese because the cost of the plant you know most of the people doing cheese production in the Northeast and the artisan level are, are actually you know people who are focused on the, the cheese end of things yeah so there is you know I would love to see more regional brands 
in the Northeast, but we have such a grip of a few very large bottlers that you know process the, the like say Dean Foods processes the bulk of the milk. There aren't that many labels. Um, North, uh, upstate Niagara produces a milk that they sell in western New York. Um, there's Hudson Valley Fresh in the Hudson River Valley. Um, there are really good cheese products produced by Cabot Cheese, is a cooperative of about um, 1,100 farms. Um, so, so those, but it's really, you know, it's war in the marketplace. Um, if you think you're going to go into New York City and sell, you have to be ready to, you know, to price discount, to fight for shelf space. Um, there was a group of uh, beef farmers in uh, Washington County who was trying to um, sell in New York City. They were raising grass-fed beef, and they just folded last month. Um, the Fresh Direct said, well, we can get it cheaper from somebody else, so they cut them off, and um, they, their whole cooperative just imploded. You know, so. Does Well, I, I mean, I've been, I don't necessarily think that Whole Foods does. I mean, I was in Whole Foods in Albany, and they had a big display that said, local organic milk. So um, there's this thing called whereismymilkfrom.com. You enter the plant code. So I, you know, entered the plant code, and all the milk was from the Midwest. So I went to the manager. I said, what is the meaning of this? And um, they were like, eh, you know, and, but all the consumers were really nice people. We're going, oh, we, you know, we really like to support our local farmers, but they didn't know that if you just look at the plant code on the, on the container, like say plant code 36, you would know it's from New York. You know, and I looked, and that, there have been times where I've seen plant code 6, which means it's um, organic milk coming in from California. So, I mean, it's like, what's the point? So, yeah, so, but I, this is where I think there just needs to be an awareness on the part of urban people. And I like Wendell Berry's theme of the urban agrarian who was a person who thinks about where their food comes from, whether I don't, you know, I mean, I don't care. I mean, I'm opposed to almond milk, but I don't care if people eat almonds and, you know, they're happy with a couple almonds as a snack. But when you add, you know, when you dump it into fluid and then try to call it my product, then I am very opposed. So. Yes. Behind you, yeah. <laughs> If so if you're you know if you're lactose intolerant and you know you can't drink milk, um, then you know if you choose a plant milk that's you know that's fine. I you know I don't care. I just would like the labeling to be almond drink or whatever. So you you go and you drink your almond drink. If you're lactose intolerant though, there are you know as most of the world, um, it, you know there's the, there's that other the Fair Life milk I think that has less lactose in it. Um, but lo globally. This is um, where fermented foods are, like yogurt or whatever, or uh, good quality cheeses don't have lactose in them, so that's a way to, to deal with lactose intolerance. But yeah, as far as milk goes, I would never want any kid to have a stomach ache or whatever from drinking milk if that impacted them, but then you know, choose something that's better for them, personally. Jane. They're also the ones who preserve the environment. I mean, you have the 
Yeah, that's so true. And just it's not monolithic. It's like the small dairy farmers and the small American cows that go out on pasture. It's very different from the, the commercial farms that do Well, so when Massachusetts has lost so many dairy farms and livestock farms that their grassland bird species are crashing. Literally, 99, down by 99% in some of the species. In my own neighborhood, every time a dairy farm falls, it's quickly cannibalized for sprawl. You know, the, I watched them um, a development down the road from our farm plow under the fledglings in the spring. The, the, the birds didn't have a chance to get out of their nests, and they had to be plowed under because the developers said, oh, you know, we need lawns immediately. The, the new people want their lawns. So, the yeah, the, exactly, the bobolinks, you know. We watch the monarch butterflies nectar. Um, there's, you know, the theory about the, the milkweed, but the nectaring territory is equally important for the journey back. So, I mean, I've literally stood on clover patches on my farm and watched hundreds of monarchs nectaring. They nectar in the last week of August. So I think it's important for ecosystem preservation. So I, this is where I really resent, and you can take it back to the Good Food Institute, I really resent wiping out of ecosystems and putting all kinds of I guess the old-fashioned term, malarkey, on some of the labels that, oh, if you want to save the environment, like Josh Tietrich had on his um, Just Mayo, oh, if you want to save the environment, use my mayonnaise, uh, my, my pseudo-mayonnaise. Okay, so I called him up and I said, you know, what, what is this? And he goes, well, I actually know a farmer, um, you know, but there's so, you know, it's, it's all about making money. Um, and it's not, so he hit on the figure, well, we've saved so many square feet of land. All right, I calculated the square feet. It was like not even one farm. Um, you know, so it's kind of like very deceptive um, use of terms and, you know, kind of like good-hearted people in the city see it and say, oh, this is great, um, but it's not necessarily the picture that's painted. But, but yeah, so, I mean, watching the farms go out, I just am horrified to see the subdivisions coming in. Well, there are farmers that are, yeah, they tried, the dairy farmers tried that in the last farm bill, but the processors went ballistic. In the last farm bill, the, the largest dairy um, organization tried to um, implement a form of supply management that would control milk production to tailor to the marketplace or at least, you know, have some kind of a signal. But the processors who really love to have the milk as input as cheap as possible went ballistic. Can we get your response? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that you, you raise a very good point, which is uh, a lot of the, the dairy industries and, and certainly small dairy farmers um, problems today, in my view, are from the consolidation and concentration of power in the, the agriculture sector that Lorraine was was talking about. Um, and you know, I think I think in this regard, um, kind of the people on the more environmental and animal welfare side can find common cause with smaller farmers like Lorraine in, in, in recognizing that this is actually a, a terrible thing um, that. Um, know, the, the way the agriculture industry as a whole, not just dairy, but uh, yeah. chicken producers. And, and we producers. do have some larger farms in our area. I mean, there's one farm with a thousand cows. It's four brothers who run the farm together. It's more efficient for the brothers to all share. So, I mean, I don't particularly condemn, you know, say, you know, a thousand cow farm or whatever. But it is very frightening with the hundred thousand cow farms coming online and, you know, the you know, if you look on the internet, you'll see this, the story of the people, the experts going to build this farm in China, which will be the 100,000 cows, or the, you know, the 20 and 30,000 cow farms of El Marai Dairy in the Saudi Arabian desert. I mean, I don't see, you know, they're buying alfalfa from China, or from California and Arizona to be hauled, hauled to Saudi Arabia to feed the cows. So that is such a, a perversion of a, 
of a, you know what we would consider to be food security and you know but they see it as important but you know I mean the Chinese are going all over the world looking for food resources with the purchase of Smithfield they now own 20% of America's breeding sows so I mean you know it's an esoteric fact that I you know when dairy farmers get together and have drinks we talk about the Chinese now own 20% of the sows but everybody else like like doesn't know like how food systems are shaping up so that's why I get back to my my idea of the urban agrarian that urban people really need to be um, you know leaders in knowing so um, you know, I've tried to get the food movement people to include us in, in talking. But, you know, I am more probably a farmer militant. Um, you know, I, my family was always involved in the milk strikes and things like that. My parents would always let us go pour milk in the streets of Utica when we, when we had to, to protest prices and things like that. So, and I've always wanted to be a member of the French Farmers Union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Dana. Infrastructure is gone. You know, like um, there used to be small grains grown in my area, but all of the grist mills are long gone. You know, they all had OSHA problems, so they're all shut down. So, you know, say, you know, grains. Um, I mean, we've looked at hops, but then Cornell had a website and an article saying, oh, it's next to impossible to make money in hops. I'm like, all right, forget that. Um, you know, so um, then the, the pe people in the, the grasslands were trying to do the pastured beef, but you know, also really, you know, there's just not a lot of connection to get the stuff into the city. I think marketing efforts would really help um, to help, and not just the New York farmers, but Pennsylvania, and you know, and all that. So, so that's where you know I urge people to try to get into the city. And you know, I'm actually going to be visiting some cheese stores while I'm here because my next door neighbor makes cheese where I work. The, I sneak out once a week. I don't tell the local bar. I always say, "Oh, I'm going to a conference," but then I actually go and I sneak out to the cheese plant. I work as a cheesemaker one day a week, so, so I'm going to stop at some cheese stores while I'm here and ask them how they get cheese and um, if they're, you know, what distributors they use. But yeah, so true to be able to get your stuff into the city somehow. Just, you know, and I, I don't know if New York City had. Um, I know um, Christine Quinn had a whole big thing called Food Print, and, um, and it was about uh, about what you're talking about, but then she didn't get elected. So I don't know what happened to that proposal. I think it was called Food Print or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have time for one more question. Does anybody have a pressing question? Yes. Uh, so, what you kind of uh, That is true. The schools have very little in the way of agricultural information for kids. You know, it, even the liberal arts colleges. You know, if, uh, you know, very rare that anybody would take a course on um, on agriculture or whatever. Like I remember being in law school, and every time something was mentioned related to agriculture, people would start laughing. <laughs> you know, but it was like, you know, they didn't really grasp what it was about. But like agriculture in the classrooms, I like. 
um, the idea in New York City of community gardens. Um, I like this, the educational efforts that um, some of the people, I don't know if you know of, um, like Karen Washington and the Just Food people, they, they like to um, have school programs so the kids grow a vegetable of their own or there are some projects where kids even have chickens. Um, you know, I think those are wonderful for, for cities. And um, there is a program called um, Agriculture in the Classroom where once a year they select a book and um, people volunteer to go into the schools to read to kids about food production. But I was in France in 2008 and I noticed they have a huge agricultural um, emphasis of teaching children about food and about agriculture. I went to um, La Salon de l'Agriculture, which is a big the annual show in Paris, and literally busloads of kids were coming in from all over the place and getting tours of the chefs had stations set up showing them how to cook. There were dairy farmers letting them milk the cows. There, you know, it was like really you know, great to see things geared towards school children at that show. Um, so I, I've often wondered if we could have a show like that in New York City. Um, you know, like bring in a couple hundred cows into Jacob Javits Center and, you know. <laughs> no, I, I thought I really, you know, but there's the disconnect here that we don't have what they have in Europe. I mean, I, and I don't know why that is. Cause it's not like we're that far away. We're just up the throughway. Any closing thoughts, Nigel or Larry? None for me. All right, I just want to thank all of our audience members for your excellent questions. And I think our panel members will probably stick around for at least a few minutes if you have anything else you want to bring up or discuss. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you to our panelists for a really excellent, um, informative presentation. I know I've certainly learned a lot tonight. And, and that's all for tonight, so thank you again. <laughs>